Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Our reading today is from Isaiah 9, just verse 6 and 7. Last week we read starting back in chapter 8, so you got really good context for the verse that we're teaching on for four weeks. Um, Reading from Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6 and 7, the scripture says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we are in the second of a four-week series where we're teaching through these four names. Each name is a two consecutive word, consecutive Hebrew word, um, what do we call it, doublet. Hebrew doublets. So there's four doublets here. gives us four names. And uh, last week, Steve taught on Wonderful Counselor. Today, we're going to be going through Mighty God. But I first want to make sure we don't miss the big picture of this passage, okay? The big picture of this passage is that the child in the prophecy is God. We don't want to miss that. And I want to give you a few reasons here. Six total. The first four reasons are the names themselves. Now, Wonderful Counselor, which Steve taught on last week, and Prince of Peace, when you look at the Hebrew words and how they're used in the Old Testament, they clearly point to God. But in the English, when you're just looking at it, and if you don't dig into it, it might not be as compelling to you. So I would say from the layman's just reading English, maybe not being taught strongly on it, those two might be weak. But the two in the middle are foot stompers. Do you know what I mean by a foot stomper? I don't mean dancing a jig while a fiddle and a banjo are being played. I had a uh, friend and co-worker who was in the Marines, and he told me that uh, when they would go through training classes, particularly the younger Marines, you know, they're men of action. They get bored in class. And their officer who was teaching them wanted to make sure they succeeded. So when it was some important point that was going to be on the test, he wouldn't say this is going to be on the test, but he would go while he's talking, okay, foot stompers. That point, and they knew from him doing that, that was going to be something they needed to know, so they'd pay attention. These two are foot stompers. Mighty God, and I have eternal Father. That's a goof. I got it from the wrong version. That's everlasting father in New King James, everlasting eternal. But to us, as even layman in English, come on, that's God. The, first one, the second one says God. The third one says everlasting. That's God. The father part points to how Jesus refers to his father, and he, he tells us. That he's our father too. He told the disciples that in a couple of cases. So these two are obviously evidence that the child the prophecy about is God. 
Now, by the way, you don't have to accept that Jesus is the fulfillment that the child in the prophecy is God to at least academically be fair to the text and conclude that's what the writer is claiming. Jesus might not be the fulfillment. Of course, Jesus is the fulfillment. But from the text, if you're going to be fair to the text, the prophet, God speaking through the prophet, is claiming the child in the prophecy is God. So the fifth reason is that the child's going to grow up to rule forever. I have this, whoops, okay. What button did I hit? There we go. Okay, we're back. Verse 7 says, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end from that time forward, even forever. No end forever. The child is going to rule forever. Now, Isaiah gives this prophecy somewhere between about 715 to 730 years before Christ. Daniel... 159 to 175 years later is going to have this prophecy from Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. It's unavoidable that the child is going to grow up to be the Son of Man. The Son of Man has an eternal kingdom. And it's not like they're parallel eternal kingdoms because this says all peoples, nations, and languages will serve Him. The child who's going to have a kingdom forever is this Son of Man who's going to have a kingdom forever. And this, of course, points to Jesus in the Gospels frequently particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, using the term Son of Man for himself. It is, it is a term that means he's fully human. But that's not why he uses the term. Everybody he's talking to is fully human. Okay, He uses the term Son of Man frequently because the people he's talking to know this. It's a reference to his deity. And it challenges the religious leaders every time that he uses that term. Okay, so in math, there's a lot of properties you learn going through math. If you're not a mathy person, just bear with me. But you probably went through this. Because long about third grade, you start being taught at the beginning of the year four or five basic math properties. And they keep coming up year after year. And one of them is the transitive property. A equals B. And if B equals C, then A equals C. So, if the ch- so, so it's just logical. If the child is going to rule forever and the Son of Man is going to rule forever, then the child is going to grow up to be that Son of Man. Okay? The sixth one is that Yahweh is causing this to happen. Now, uh, where did I get that from? The end of the verse. I think I have it here. Yeah. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, you guys know because Bob talked about it a lot. Your Bible, uppercase for all four letters, L O R D, all uppercase, that's meant to tip you off that in the Hebrew, this is God's personal name that He gave to the nation of Israel. In the Hebrew, when we transliterate the letter, it's Y H W H. No vowels are present. The best 
figuring out of how it's probably pronounced is Yahweh. So we say Yahweh, okay? But it's God's personal name, and this is important because when we, when we say the Lord, so actually this is a nuance. Some of you may prefer the Lord. Some of you may prefer Yahweh. That's okay. But the Lord comes across as a title, right? Like the president, the boss, the pastor, okay? Um, the personal name draws you in with a little more intimacy, okay? The, the title is a little bit more distancing. So if I say I'm going to go talk to the pastor about it, or if I say, I'm going to go talk to Bob about it, well, the Bob part is more relational, right? In the Hebrew, they have a title. It's the Hebrew word Adonai, 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 uh, what? Adonai, sorry for that, messed it up, known it for years. Adonai, yeah, they haven't changed the pronunciation, Adonai. They have a, they have a word for that, Adonai, which means Lord. And in your Bible, that shows up as capital L, lowercase o-r-d. And they're actually used together some places where it will be Adonai Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh. Okay? So the zeal of Yahweh of hosts, this is actually um, Sabaoth, yeah. Yahweh Sabaoth. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So Isaiah has more to say about this. In verses Bob's talked about, chapter 43 to like 48, just ram it home over and over again. And I just, I got three of these up here in chapter 43. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. In chapter 44 we have this, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know of none. No, not one. In uh, 45, and there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. In the notes handout, there's some more verses from Isaiah that, that are on the same theme. So the reason I bring this up here, why it's a reason that the child is God is because Yahweh is causing it to happen. And Yahweh says from the same writer in the same book, we don't even have to jump to other books of the Bible, that there's only one God. Yahweh is the only God. So if Yahweh is causing this to happen, where the child is going to be called Mighty God and Eternal Father, and Yahweh will tolerate no other rivals, this is even more astounding because it means... That in conclusion, Yahweh will become a child and grow up to be the son of man who rules forever. You cannot be fair to the text. And here I mean the two verses in chapter 9, but also all of Isaiah and the Daniel text. All of that together. You cannot be fair to that text without coming to this conclusion. Even if you don't think Jesus is the fulfillment you got to come to that conclusion. Okay, so that's the big picture. I want to make sure that we don't miss it. Turning to mighty God. And uh, I talked about Yahweh equals the Lord. From this point on, I'm going to try to substitute Yahweh. I think I have in what's on screen, but when I'm reading some passages, I'm going to try to substitute Yahweh in for the Lord. Um, the Hebrew words here are El Gabor, 
And I've told you before about how I paint by numbers. I study Greek and Hebrew by numbers because I don't know Greek and Hebrew. But fortunately, there's this wonderful thing called Strong's Concordance that gives numbers to all the words. And you, as a layman, you can dig into that. And you can, along with Greek or Hebrew dictionary, you can study where how these words are used, where you're not tracing just the English word like mighty, but you're actually chasing the Hebrew word that's used there for mighty. And uh, so I have God mighty here because El is the word for God, and uh, Gabor is the word for mighty, so God mighty, but it gets turned around in the translation, mighty God. Um, uh, there's, there's two other passages in the Old Testament where these words are used in an identically matching fashion, consecutive. Um, this is one of them. It shall come to pass. This is just a page over in your Bible, Isaiah 10. It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. So here we have El Gabor at the end of that sentence. Yahweh right before it. So now, this to me says Yahweh is God. But I, I am a little bit inferring. It's not quite the foot stomper, okay? But if we go to the one other verse that has this exact pairing, it's a foot stomper, Jeremiah thirty-two eighteen. You show kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, this is El Gabor, whose name is Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. So, um, yeah. So the mighty God is Yahweh. Now, there's lots of verses in the Bible and passages that we could go to to talk about how mighty God is. He does wonders, miracles all through the Bible. Okay, amazing things. Mighty's not always used there, but you see him being powerful, awesome, strong, in control. All these things that kind of go with mighty. Okay, so I'm not going to throw a lot more of those verses at you. What I want to do for the rest of this time is I want to look at three examples of God's might, not to convince you he's mighty, but I want to draw out some ways that his might is demonstrated. And as I go through it, I want you to be thinking about two questions where you bring this home to yourself, okay? The first one has to do with the past. What has God done in your life where you look back on it and view it as the mighty God working in you or on your behalf? Okay, so you're looking back at your life, trying to remember, when has God shown himself mighty to me? It might be last week. It might be 20 years ago. It might be both. It might be lots of, you may have lots of cases. You may just have one or two. Elijah gave a testimony. He can point back to like one to three weeks ago. Lots of cases. I mean, Tony's trip up there, he didn't mention this one. I think Tony did in a prior testimony time. But one of their friends let them stay in their house. <laughs> and it was unlocked. <laughs> I mean, we leave our house unlocked a lot, but not when we go out of town. They're out of town, left it all. Go use our house. You know, so it might be in the last week or two you can testify to it. But I want you thinking about this, okay, because the past what you remember God doing directly ties to how you praise Him 
how you thank him. Okay? Your praise and thanksgiving, it might continue, but it tends to get harder and weaker if you're not remembering what God has done. By the way, you can remember what God has done here. Got lots of examples. But thinking of ones in your own life help. Okay, so I want you to be thinking about that as we go through these three examples in the Bible. The second thing I want you to be thinking about is a future question, present and future. What are you asking God to do that will only happen if God is a mighty God? Now, this question, the first one has to do with getting it encouraging praise and thanksgiving. The second one has to do with faith because it's only in faith based on believing that God is mighty that you have motivation to ask for him to do something that only a mighty God could do. And the other thing is this is probably not going to be little things because you and your mind are going to be thinking of, oh, I can take care of that, which may or may not be true, but we tend to think that way, okay? So this has to do with faith, standing on the word of God, believing what he says, and based on what he says, asking, okay? So I want you to think about those two as I go through these examples. So the first example is from Deuteronomy 10:17. 10, now, I talked about how there were three total passages where El Gabor are right there matching identically. Uh, one of them is the Isaiah 9, 6 passage, and then the other two that I showed you. There are a few other verses where El and Gabor get used in the same verse where it's about the Gabor is referring to God, but they're not necessarily together in that matching fashion. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, 17 is one of those. So we're going to be looking. I'm going to read through some verses in this passage. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10, 17. And, um, but I have, I have that specific verse, if I could hit the right button. Uh, up here, it says, For Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Now, in terms of the, the Hebrew words, um, it, it would, if we substitute in, it would be for Yahweh, because these are some words you guys know. For, for Yahweh, your Elohim is Elohim of Elohim, and Adonai of, I think this is Adon at this point, it's slightly different, but Adonai of Adon, the great El and awesome. So they actually are together here, but in the way it's phrased, we pitch a comma in, um, in English. But the mighty is referring to God. So let's read from there that actually some of the points I'm going to make are, are actually made before this verse too. But just going forward from here, starting with verse 17. For, the Lord your God, for Yahweh your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So my first thing I take from this... God's might is shown in that he helps the less fortunate, those in humble circumstances in real need. Okay? His might is shown when he does that. Um, resuming in 20, you shall fear Yahweh your God, you shall serve him, 
and to hold you and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name he is your praise and he is your god who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen now great and awesome things is both referring back to a few things he's already said and forward to more that's going to come in chapter 11. I'm going to keep reading through 11 verse 7. The chapter breaks weren't there when Moses was writing this. Okay, Verse 22, Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now Yahweh your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. Um, so I want to talk about this, but first let me put my point up. He keeps his promises. God's might is shown in that he fulfills what he promises. Now, who had he made a promise to about descendants being more than the stars in the heavens? Abraham, yeah. When he was still called Abram in Genesis 15, you can read about that. God even tells him as many as the stars, if you can count them. Which got me off on the sidetrack, and I was Googling. I was, how many stars can you see with the naked eye? Now, with telescopes, we know that there's a tremendous number of stars, millions, billions, gazillions, we don't even know the total, that we can't see with the naked eye. Abram didn't know about that. God's communicating with him where he is. Look up at the stars. If you can count them, your descendants will be more than these. Well, so what I found was that with the naked eye, um, in a typical dark sky, you can see about 5,600 stars. Now, if you can count them, would still apply. I mean, you're probably going to lose count with 5,600 stars. But a, a, a typical dark sky means that you are far away from human light sources because cities, even like a Walmart at an exit, in a somewhat rural area, puts out a bunch of light pollution and cuts down greatly on what you can see. Uh, one thing I read said in the typical decent-sized city, you can only see about 20 to 50 stars. So just think about that. You just go 50, 60 miles outside the city, now you're up to like 5,600. Then it also said that in a perfect dark sky, in perfect dark sky conditions, the human eye can see about 45,000 stars. Uh, what's perfect dark sky conditions? The thing I read said that you need to be 150 miles or more from cities, even small rural cities, which actually got me, got me on another tangent. Have you heard of the McFarthest spot? McFarthest, MC Farthest. So I started out looking at Walmarts. I was wondering how far, it, how, where in the U.S. can you be farthest from a Walmart? And I couldn't find that answer. There's like, there's like about 4,000 4, Walmarts. But I did find it for McDonald's. There's about 14,000 McDonald's in the U.S. And there's a guy who in 20, first 2009 and then he updated it in 2012, he figured it out. And the McFar he called it the McFarthest spot. The point in the, we're talking the lower 48 U.S. You know, states in the U.S where you're the farthest from a McDonald's. And it happens to be uh, just north of where Justin's parents are living. They're in Fallon, Nevada. Annabelle and Abram, Justin's brother and sister and brother, live there. It's about 160 uh, to 170 miles north-northwest from them in the northern part of Nevada. 
Sheldon National Wildlife Refuge, the guy has a video where he's got a GPS and he's walking through this sagebrush and he comes to the spot and, you know, and he took a bunch of McDonald's food with him and he puts it on the ground. But at that point, you're 115 miles from the nearest McDonald's. So 115 miles is the most you can get away from a McDonald's. McDonald's are typically, you know, in a rural area, they're like at an exit with a gas station. You got light sources. I don't think you can get to the perfect dark sky conditions in the lower continental 48 now. You'd have to go somewhere else. But if you could get there, 45,000 stars. So how did God do? They were more than a million people. When Moses is talking to them here in Deuteronomy. Okay, so. Gee whiz info for today, the McFarthest spot. Continuing in chapter 11, verse 1, Therefore you shall love Yahweh your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His judgments, and His commandments always. Know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of of Yahweh your God, His greatness and His mighty hand and His outstretched arm. Now notice verse 3 and following. His signs and His acts which He did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh king of Egypt and to all his land. He's talking about the ten plagues that led to them being released. Verse 4, what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you, and how, the, how Yahweh has destroyed them to this day. So he's talking about walking through the Red Sea, and then the sea coming in on the, chair, on the Egyptians and wiping them out. Verse 5, what he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place. Here he's talking about all the provision God's given them through 40 years. Manna, um, leading them, um, their sandals not wearing out, all that kind of stuff. He's taken care of them for 40 years in the wilderness. Verse 6, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, their households, their tents, and all the substance that was in their possession in the midst of all Israel. Here he's talking about God's might being shown in punishing rebellion. These folks had rejected Moses as God's leader in in the process were not believing what God had said. And there were other things like that in the wilderness. So you got a bunch of categories covered here, but they all have to do with signs and miracles. By the way, to just for completeness, verse 7, he says, But your eyes have seen every great act of Yahweh, which he did. This is the generation that they're now adults about to go into the promised land. And they were children when they came out of Egypt, as old as maybe 18 or so. By the two-year point in the wilderness when they refused to go into the promised land, their parents and grandparents refused to go into the promised land, The oldest of these is 19, because God says only those 20 and below or below 20. I can't remember if 20 was included. One of you probably knows. But anyway, below that threshold, you're not going to go into the promised land. And they wander the next 38 years until all that grandparents and parents have died. And now he's, so they, they are eyewitnesses through this, through their lifetime of all of this. Okay, so he performed signs and miracles. Uh, Oh, before I left that, Okay, so those three are things that I draw out of how God shows his might. He helps the less fortunate. He keeps his promise. He performs signs and miracles. Has he ever done any of these for you? If he has, that fits into that question about the past. Okay? 
Example number two, we're going to go to Luke 1, verse 49. So this is Mary speaking. She says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Some versions say, The mighty one has done great things for me. Now, we're obviously not looking at Hebrew. This is not Gabor. Uh, this word is uh, number 1415 in Greek. For me, as an um, American, English-speaking person not educated in Greek, I look at that and I'm thinking either dinatos or dynatos. Dynatos. Because like dynamo and dynamite in English, those are English words, they come from this. Okay, the Blue Letter Bible guy says it's dunatos. Is that right? All right, testimony of two witnesses, Bob and the Blue Letter Bible guy. We're going with dunatos. Dunatos. So that means mighty, okay? So she says, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. All right, let's look at this. I want to start with 46. And read through this. Okay, so Luke 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. So that's the first thing. He chose Mary to bear his son. you got to go back and look at the verses that came before but the great thing he's done is choosing her of all women to bear the Son of God. The uh, angel Gabriel says to her, um, he calls her highly favored. When she talks to Elizabeth, which is just the verses right before this, Elizabeth in two different verses speaks of her being blessed among all women because she's going to bear the Son of God. Now, I'm going to come back to that. You might not be able to identify with this in terms of God showing his might to you, but I'm going to come back to that. Um, Oh, I didn't get to that. Continuing on in verse 50. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. His might is shown in being merciful to those who fear him. 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. So, and continuing with 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He scatters the proud while exalting the lowly. God's might is shown in this. As a cross-reference just to the character of God and how he does things, you could think of James 4, 6, I think it is, somewhere in James 4, and also 1 Peter 5, 5, where God says he's, a God, he's opposed to the proud, but give great, gives grace to the humble. Uh, continuing with 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed, Forever. This is a reference again to him keeping his promises. God's might is shown in these things. So um, I said I would come back to this with Mary. Sometimes when God shows his might in your life, it might not necessarily make life easier 
for you. Did it make life easy for Mary? No, it greatly complicated life. At, at what point in the timeline from like the angel speaking to Zacharias and Jesus eventually being born, when did this happen? How far is she along? Anybody know? Three months at the most, because uh, verse uh, 56 says, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. The, the, angel, the angel Gabriel has told her, basically as a sign that God can do anything, nothing is impossible for God, that her elderly relative, Elizabeth, is pregnant with child. And the scripture says she then got up and went there. It doesn't say this, but it's logical to conclude, having gotten this message from the angel about something miraculous that's going to happen, who mentions Elizabeth, she's going to go see Elizabeth and see if she's pregnant. And, of course, she is. And you have, the, you have that encounter in the prior verses before the passage I just read. But Mary may only be a few weeks after Gabriel spoke to her. The, the, the time it takes to get permission from parents, maybe Joseph, she's already betrothed, go down there, whatever that travel time was, and talk to Elizabeth. It could, this, this praise song that she gives could have been the day that she met Elizabeth. It could have been the end of the three months. It's got to be somewhere in between there. So she could be from a couple weeks pregnant where she wouldn't even know, except for it had been prophesied to her, to three months. Joseph may not actually know. Now, I want to give Mary benefit of the doubt in that culture that she probably told her parents fairly quickly and Joseph her betrothed. You see movies and stuff where she might, Joseph may not know till she starts showing. Scripture doesn't tell us. It could be that. I think those movies tend to come from our Western mindset where we don't relate to the culture of betrothal and we want to portray Elizabeth as really, I mean not Elizabeth, Mary, as struggling greatly with her dad matching her up with somebody she's not in love with. That's totally a Hollywood-type script, even though credible Christians have produced movies that not trying to be Hollywoodish, but, you know, with that kind of plot thing. It could be that, but, I mean, their culture betrothal was how things worked. So I prefer to give her the benefit of the doubt. Now, Joseph, even if he knows at this point, he may not be ready to keep her as his wife. He may be wrestling with this the whole time she's gone. We don't know. I mean, you've got to go to Matthew to find out that an angel appears to him in his dream, and that convinces him not to put her away privately. But this three months could have been a period where he's thinking about that. We just, we just don't know. But my point is she's only a few weeks to a few months pregnant, probably not showing at all, and this is not going to make life easy. She's got to deal with the culture where an unmarried woman getting pregnant could lead to stoning, uh, the shame for her family, um, just the struggle that's going to come. I mean, they're going to, with her probably eight or nine months pregnant, they're going to travel to Jerusalem, um, well, to Bethlehem for the census, going to give birth in a uh, barn or stable type situation. Um, going to see her son crucified. Doesn't make, when God does mighty things, it does not necessarily make life easier for you. That's my point there. 
Now, my bigger point from this list, because some of these are wonderful things that would make your life easier, has God done anything like this in your life? If so, that relates to that past question. Okay, example three. Go to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to read around this passage too. 19 verse 26. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, uh, Scripture says, But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now what does this have to do with mighty? Well, it turns out in the Greek, this is pretty cool, I think. Dunatos is the word here for possible. And in the Greek, when they put an A in front, A from my English back, alpha in front, that makes it not, right? So, a dunatos is impossible. So, to me, since I'm on a mighty theme here, and that's what the word means in other places in the Greek, I got this alternate translation. With men, there is no might. But with God, there is might for all things. Now, the scripture doesn't say this, okay? This is me just morphing it, all right? But that's the same word that she uses in Luke 1, Mary uses to say, he who is mighty has done a great thing. And Jesus is using it here. With God, this is impossible. I mean, with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are dunatos. Possible, mighty, because God is mighty. So who knows the context? I asked you to turn there, so some of you may have already seen. What, what's been happening in the verses preceding? Okay, the verses preceding. What's the context? Anybody know? The, the rich young ruler. Yeah, the rich young ruler has come, and Jesus has been talking to him. And the rich young ruler, if you scroll up in that passage, I'm not, I'm not going to read this whole passage, but... It starts in verse 16, and, and by the way, rich, the ruler part of rich young ruler, I didn't go check it. We may get that from the Mark or Luke accounts. In this account, it doesn't say he's a ruler. It just says he's a young man, and we found out he has great possessions, so he's a rich young man. Um, but your Bibles likely have a title there saying the rich young ruler. Um, in 16, his question to Jesus is, good teacher... What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So this whole discussion is about having eternal life. When he walks away, if you go to 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. By the way, as an aside, Bob said something about being rich just like one to four weeks ago in a message. Um, All of us are rich by the world's standards. You may not think you're rich when you're looking at other Americans, but all of us are rich by the world's standards. I heard a guy once say that a third of the world sleeps on dirt. Another third of the world sleeps in beds that are on dirt. Or you could substitute dirt for on the ground, no man-made floor. Only a third of the world sleeps in beds on a man-made floor. So if you're sleeping in a bed that's not on dirt, you're in the top third. Okay? So Jesus has said, 
A camel can go through the eye of a needle easier than a rich person can enter the kingdom of God. And remember, this started talking about eternal life. That was the question. So eternal life and entering the kingdom of God are equated. Same thing. All right? So the disciples, in verse 25, when they hear it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Now, we understand from other scriptures, and I've even shown a few things about God being mighty, that He exalts the lowly. And so, it's reasonable to think that humble people, lowly people, have a better chance of being saved than a proud person. Those don't necessarily equate to rich versus poor, but maybe they sometimes do. If you're poor, you may be humble. If you're wealthy, you may be proud. But I've known a lot of pretty dirt poor people that were awful proud. And I've known a few wealthy people who were pretty humble. Okay, so you can't necessarily equate them. But my point here is let's get inside the minds of the disciples. The disciples don't know some of those other verses later in the New Testament about humble. They know some Old Testament ones. But when they say, who then can be saved? They're thinking, if a rich man can't be saved, nobody can be saved. That's where they're coming from. And God says, with men this is impossible. I mean, Jesus says, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So the one thing I draw from this is that God's might is shown when He saves people and gives them eternal life. You know, the costliest thing that God has had to pay is giving His Son to die on the cross shedding His precious blood to pay for our sin. It seems to me that all other things God does are little things compared to that. So if you have been saved, think about this. Before you were saved, you were, your spirit was dead to God. You were fallen. You had a sinful nature. You had broken the laws of the Creator of the universe. You were a rebel from the king of kings. And in his might, he provides a way to forgive you, to quicken your spirit, bring you to life spiritually, to deliver you from the domain of darkness, to forgive you and redeem you and move you into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then he goes further and puts his Holy Spirit in you. If you've been saved, that might be the biggest example of God's might in your life. But when you're praising and thanking Him 30 years since you got saved, you might not be thinking about that one. It's good to think about that one. All right, so here's my two questions. Uh, again, the first one points to praise and thanksgiving, fostering that. The second one points to faith. What are you asking? I, I want to tell you a story at this point, the story of the wealthy businessman. He ran a business, was very successful. He was a kind man. He had an open-door policy so that his employees could come ask him for stuff or give him their suggestions anytime they wanted. One day, three employees came to him. Employee number one made his request, Sir, would it be possible to upgrade the toilet paper in all the company's restrooms from single-ply to double-ply? Two-ply would make people more comfortable. 
while it's a behind-the-scenes thing, it um, would help morale. And so the wealthy businessman paused for a moment, and then he said, I will make that happen. That's a little thing for me to do. Employee number two then made his request. He said, sir, there's a school with specialized training that would benefit the company. May, would you pay for me to go away to that school for a few years? And while that would help me in regard to a career, I will come back and work for the company, and it will help the company. And the wealthy businessman, after a pause, said, I will do that. I have many employees. Someone else can do your job while you're gone. And you're right, that will help the company in the long run. Employee number three then made his request. He said, sir, a few blocks from our company, there's a woman who's got terminal cancer. The doctors think she's only going to live about another week. And she has an 18-month-old child. There's no family, no other family. That child is going to be orphaned and abandoned. I don't have the means to adopt the child, but you do. Would you adopt that child? The wealthy businessman paused for several moments and then said to employee number three, you're asking me to do something that does not help you and does not help the company. Do I have that right? And employee number three said, yes, but I know you to be a kind man. And if you do this, it will make you look so good in the community. And it's consistent with your character. And the wealthy businessman paused for a considerable time and then said, you are my employee and I care about what you care about. And you are right. I am kind and this would be consistent with who I am. I will do this. And really, this too is a little thing. Now, I tell you that story because in us asking God for things, there's stuff to consider here. Do you ask God for things that make you more comfortable? Do you ask God for things that will make you, we could substitute in the spiritual stuff, this is valid, make me, help me grow in Christ and be more fruitful for the kingdom? And or do you ask God for things that won't help you at all, but you know it's his desire and it's consistent with who he is and will make him look good? Now, as I give you these three categories, there's no judgment here, okay? The toilet paper request is an okay request. Our God is so mighty, everything we can ask him for is a little thing. He's got the power. And he loves us. He loves to do little things for us. Gail was telling me about a little prayer she pitched up to God after looking for something yesterday at our house. And the moment she prayed, she turned around and found it. A little thing, okay? It's not like God is too busy for you to ask him for things. 
in his might and in his omniscience, he can handle all our simultaneous requests. Okay? So asking for little things is okay. Asking for things that further his kingdom, help you grow in Christ is good. But I want you to be encouraged to also ask him for things that you know are consistent with his character and don't do you any good. Okay? Remember, you're on the same team. If the team's doing good. Elijah, in your testimony, when you talked about these connections from the army, it's like you didn't use the word fellowship, but like a brother fellowship where people take care of each other. That's what we as God's people are. I started to say should be, but we are that, whether we're doing it well or not. Okay. Now, as you're listening to me, there's one last thing I need to deal with because um, somebody's probably thinking, what if I ask and God says no? I don't have time to dig deeply into that, okay, because we're at the end of the message. And the message isn't specifically on that topic. But God does say no. With Paul, Paul asked three times for that thorn in the flesh to be taken away, and God said no. My grace is sufficient for you and your weakness. In the book of Habakkuk, you can read about the prophet crying out to God twice, I think, and he wants God to punish evil nations and to protect Judah. And God replies telling him, no, I'm bringing the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians, to wipe out this nation because of its sin. And when you get to uh, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3, you see a change in the prophet. He stops asking, and I think it's down around verse 16 or so. From there through the end of the chapter, it's a great thing to go read. But he becomes, he accepts the no, and he says, I will still praise you. Even if, and he names things that in his society basically mean even if nothing good happens for me. I will still praise you. So here's my third question that I put up. And, and I have to say here, I am not trying, I don't, I'm not trying to beat anybody up with this, okay? This is a question that goes to maturing faith, okay? Because this is hard. The question is, does God have to do what you want in order for you to be convinced he is the mighty God? When, when we go, people go through situations where they're, as Bob says, a troublesome situation, and it tests our faith. It could be an, a, an illness, a chronic illness that just goes on and on and on, and you're wondering, is, am I ever going to get well? It could be uh, the death of a dream, something that you wanted in your life, and you finally realize, God's not going to give me this. It's a no. It's not going to happen. Um, it, it could be uh, something you've worked at and put a lot of effort in and suddenly it just crumbles and you're wondering, God, why would you do this? I have had one, and I won't go into the details here, but where I was convinced that something that did not benefit me would greatly glorify God in the eyes of some non-believers I knew and God did not do it. I prayed about that thing for months. His answer was No. And I'm thinking it's no, because he knew how he wanted to glorify himself. Wasn't the way I had come up with. Okay, when those things happen, people get 
start doubting. I mean, I could substitute in here that God loves you. Does God have to do what you want for you to be convinced that He loves you? The two things wrap together because when things aren't going well and you're in a troublesome situation, Satan enters in and starts lobbing the lies. Does God really love me? Why didn't He do it if He loves me? If He, if he really is all loving, well, maybe He doesn't have the power to do it. That gets to the might. But if He's all powerful, He must not love me. comes back circular. You're only going to get here where you're convinced God loves you and that God is mighty if it's not based on what He does for you. If it's based on what He says. This is where real mature faith enters in. Going through a hard time, not seeing God do what you're asking but you fervently believe and hold fast to and cling not to what you've experienced and derive from that, but from what He says in His Word, that He is mighty, that He does love you, to borrow from Elijah's testimony, that He's faithful, even when He doesn't do what you want Him to do. So I'm going to close in prayer at this point, and uh, we'll sing a song. Father, I praise you because you are the mighty God and you prophesied well ahead of Jesus' birth to where people being fair to the text of what you had given them should know that your plan was to become a child who would grow up to be the Son of Man and rule forever. And we know this fulfillment is in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the might you've shown in the past in our lives. Help us, Lord, to be people who pray in faith. Because the opposite of that, to not ask you for things, is to basically quit being dependent on you and try to be independent of you. That's not a good place. Help us to be people who relish dependency on you and who pray fervently in faith. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to have deep convictions founded on your, on your word. So that when we go through troublesome times, when we don't see you answer with a yes, that we still hang in there in faith knowing that you are faithful, that you are loving, that you are mighty. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.